Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired their personal trainer as a caterer. All right, folks, let's keep this line moving. You there with the tongs. Picking up one Duchess potato at a time will not cut it at my catering table. Drop and give me 50. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Okay, this is what we call the wild mushroom and asparagus dip, dip, and press. Come on, let's get those plates above your heads. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. Hi, and welcome to the Shoot from the Heart podcast with me, Diane Bell. If you want to write a script, make a movie, or quite simply live an abundant and creatively fulfilled life, you are in the right place. Each week, I'll share with you tips, techniques, and real-world information that will inspire and empower you on your path. Thank you so much for joining me. I am rooting for you all the way. Let's do this. Hello, beautiful screenwriters, filmmakers, and creative souls, and welcome to episode 65 of the Shoot from the Heart podcast. Today, I wanted to go down my own personal story of what it's been like to be a woman and an artist. And I just want to share with you from my heart what this journey has been for me. And there might be some things that if you're a woman, you will relate to. There might be some things that you can learn from. There might be some things that will resonate. So I just want to talk about my own personal experiences as a woman and an artist. I want to start by saying that for me growing up, the idea that I could be a writer or a director or any of those things was just so far-fetched, it doesn't even come on the scales. (laughs) I mean, the idea of being a film director, what? For me, a film director growing up was definitely a man. I couldn't really even imagine women doing it. I was talking about this the other day on Instagram, and it was kind of fun because a bunch of ladies were reminding me of other female film directors. But I said, for me in the 90s, which is when I sort of came of age in terms of falling in love with cinema as an art form, I lived in the art house cinema in the 1990s. Just for context, I graduated from high school in 1991. So these were the years that I was at university and just after that. Now, in the 1990s, there weren't very many female directors. In fact, for me, the only ones that I really remember making an impact on me, it was Sally Potter with Orlando. It was Jane Campion in Angel at the Table and later The Piano. There was, hmm, let me think. (laughs) Now, when I mentioned this on Instagram, some of the ladies said, oh, what about Catherine Bigelow or Nora Ephron? And they were making movies. Also, Susan Seidelman. I don't know if you say Seidelman or Seidelman. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, who had done Desperate Seeking Susan. There was a seminal movie for me when I was slightly younger. I loved that movie. But by the time that I was really falling in love with cinema as an art form, I was really in the art house cinema. I was really in the world of art house cinema, not in the Catherine Bigelow nor Efron mainstream cinema. So these, although these women were definitely making amazing films in that time, they weren't women that I sort of aspired to be or related to. Another woman, I remember watching Vagabond by Agnes Varda and discovering her uh, filmography. So there were there were a few. <laughs> but, but when you think that I was watching, on average, 10, 12, 15 movies a week, it's not a lot of w- movies by women at all. So my idea of what was possible for me as a woman was not I could be a film director, because to be honest, the women who were directing these movies just seemed so special. They seemed almost like unicorns to me. They seemed like people who were 
different from me, anointed somehow. Like I was sure that they had known even when they were in high school that this is what they wanted to do and they probably went to high school, they went, probably went to film school and it was too late for me. <laughs> I actually sort of thought that probably. I, I'm not special. I, I didn't have this burning desire when I was a child to, to make films. So maybe it's not for me. I couldn't really imagine myself being that special. I remember at one point seeing, at this time, Lynn Ramsey, the director of Ratcatcher. I saw her at the Edinburgh Film Festival in the flesh. I saw a female filmmaker in the flesh. And that made such a powerful impression on me. It was actually the year that Morven Collar came out. She was with Samantha Morton at a party at the film festival. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a female filmmaker standing there. And she's Scottish and she's working class. Good heavens. How is this possible? And again, she just seemed like another, like a creature from a different world. I couldn't be that. Now, I could start to imagine myself being a screenwriter at this time, just vaguely, <laughs> not powerfully. And I got on with that slowly but surely. I wrote my first screenplay. I started writing it when I was 30, and I finished writing it when I was 33, three years in the making. And the film is very much about men. It's about a Mexican voiceover actor who dubbed the movies of Mickey Rourke into Spanish. So that was the first thing that I wrote. So it's a totally male script, very sort of traditional in many ways. It was a male buddy movie, in fact, you might even say. After that, I got hired to write various things, and they were also all very masculine projects. I wrote a terrorist thriller with John McTiernan, the director of Die Hard. I wrote a horror film for a company that was very misogynistic, really. <laughs> I tried to make it not so, but... I mean, the underlying story that they wanted to tell was not nice for women. Horror films, they really are, really, are they? So I'm going to get a lot of feedback from that. Everyone's going to be like, no, horror films are totally pro-feminist. I don't know. But the thing for me was during this time, I never made it an issue that I was a woman. I started to work as a screenwriter and I never really made it a thing that, oh, this is harder for me because I was a woman. I was aware that to carve out a career as a screenwriter for anybody is a challenge whether you're male or female. I was aware completely of the systemic injustices, but I also just chose not to plug into them. I just decided I wasn't going to make that my story because I wasn't going to make any of it my story. I wasn't going to plug into the idea that this was impossible or that a woman like me couldn't do this or any like that, anything like that. I just decided I am doing this and I live my life that way. And the way that I navigated working mostly with men during this period was by holding very high standards and boundaries for myself. I don't think I ever was treated in any untoward way by anyone in, this, in these years. I feel completely like I was respected and treated as an equal and all those things. And I think that was partly because the energy that I had, that's what I expected. I didn't expect anything less than that. And that's what I received. By the way, I'm not saying that if you do receive less than that, it's because somehow you didn't do your part if you're a woman, okay? just to be absolutely clear. But I'm just saying my experience, I never experienced anything uh, like negative behavior from the men that I was working with. On the contrary, they were all fantastic and really great to work with. So then I decided to direct my first film, Obsolidia. It's a film about a man who is really fearful about the end of the world, is really sad that so many things are changing, so many things are dying off. And it's about this journey he takes with a woman going to the desert to meet a scientist who's predicting the end of the world. And I was, I just, I made the film. And again, I, I hadn't, 
for me, the question of me being a woman, it just never really entered my frame of reference. I didn't think of it being harder. I didn't think about what it meant in terms of how I relate to men on set or how the male crew members relate to me or how I get their respect or anything like that. It just wasn't an issue to me. I never even thought about it. And again, fantastic experience making the film. That film got into Sundance 2010. And what was interesting was there were Out of the 16 films in competition that year, in the narrative competition, four of them were directed by women, which I think at that time was something of a record. So four out of 16, 25%. And I remember at this party for directors or for filmmakers at Sundance, tracking down the other women. And one of them was Deborah Granick, the director of Winter's Bone. And I spoke with her and I said, you know, congratulations on your film. And so isn't it so great? I said that this year they've broke the record. I mean, 25% of films here are directed by women in the competition. And that's great because at that point, the industry standard was 4%. That's right, 4% of films being directed by women. So actually having 25% of films being directed by women in this category seemed like amazing to me. Well, she just looked at me and she said, "Uh uh-uh, Diane, this will be amazing when it's 50%. And I was like, oh, and I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right. Why am I celebrating the 25% when really we want 50%? So that was kind of amazing. (laughs) That was one of those little eye-opening moments for me where I'm like, why would I settle for so much less? Now, not long after this movie had come out, I became aware of something called the Bechdel test. I'm not sure how to say that either. I'm revealing all my, my lack of knowledge about how to pronounce words today. The Bechdel. Bechdel? Who? How do you spell it? B-E-C-H-D-E-L. So if you know how to say it correctly, teach me. Bechdel. <laughs> well, the Bechdel test. So this is a test for films. And if you haven't heard of it, it's very interesting. That basically reveals to us the extent to which films are driven by men and men's stories. And the questions of the films are this. First of all, is there more than one female character in the movie? Second of all, if there are two or more female characters in the movie, do they have names? Third of all, do these two women, if there are two women with names, do they meet? Do they talk? And if they do talk, do they talk about something other than men? And you won't be surprised probably to hear that most films actually fail at the very first question. Are there two female characters in the movie with names? Most films are like, nope, we got one. (laughs) And other than that, we got a waitress somewhere, but she doesn't have a name. She's just waitress. So I looked at this and I thought that is so interesting. And I applied it to my film, Obsolidia. And I've shocked and dismayed that I had made a film that failed the test. Yes, there are two females in the movie who have names, but actually, they never meet. They never meet. And I went, wow, that's really crazy. can't believe it. I've made a film that fails the Bechdale test. So to add salt to the wound, I also then heard Reese Witherspoon talking about women and women in film and women's roles in films. And she said, when I get a script, she said, I always flick through it and look for the time when a woman says, what are we going to do? And I laughed about this and she's laughing about it because she says, do you know, the funny thing is in real life, women always know what to do. They always know what to do. And she said, but every script I read, at some point the woman says, what are we going to do? 
And this is so embarrassing to admit. I reflected on my film Obsolidia. And lo and behold, there is a scene, if you watch it, (laughs) you'll see it, where the lead female character does indeed look to the man and say, what are we going to do? This is so humiliating to me to admit this. (laughs) But it's true. It was at this point that I realized really the extent to which my own brain and my own subconscious and my own artistic choices have been completely colonized by the patriarchy. I've been conditioned naturally by the society in which I grew up and all the movies that I'd watched and all the stories. I'd say the 90s, watching 10, 15 movies per week. And as we discussed, probably about 98, 99% of them directed by men. Probably almost the same percentage about men, maybe like 95%. Is it any surprise to discover that your own mind has been colonized in this way to whose stories should be told, to how they should be told, all the things. Well, I made a very conscious decision there and then to make my next film about women. And the film that I ended up making was called Bleeding Heart. It was initially called Shiva in May. It was changed after, after, it, was, after it was made. This is the movie business. You don't always get to choose the name of your movie. That's what it is. So Bleeding Heart is about a woman. She's a yoga teacher who meets her biological sister for the first time and discovers her biological sister as a young sex worker with a very abusive boyfriend, and she decides she's going to try to save her. So it's a very, very female-centric film. It definitely passes the Bechdel test. There are a lot of scenes where the two women with names, I mean, originally the film's name was the two names, Shiva and May, (laughs) And, and it's very much their story. What was totally interesting to me when that film premiered at Tribeca was the response to it. And I was suddenly confronted with the reality of the fact that the critics are predominantly male. It's a very interesting thing. Surprise, surprise. And the critics, the ones that I read anyway, a lot of them took a lot of offense about the male characters in the movie. These male characters, they're just, they're not very well fleshed out. They're two-dimensional. And that's a fair criticism of the movie in one hand. But on the other hand, I thought, you know, if we criticized every movie we watch with two-dimensional female characters that are there to serve the story of the main characters, the men, we'd criticize almost every movie that exists, to be honest. Because the movie is not about the men. That movie is about the women. But rather than talking about the women, we talk about the fact that the men are given a bit of short shrift, which I found quite fascinating. You learn very quickly as a film director that films about women are harder to sell. They're harder to get money for in the first place, still, even today. And they're harder to sell. They're harder to promote. I remember around that time a movie called Suffragette coming out. I don't know if you saw it about the Suffragettes movement. I thought it was a wonderful film. It had its flaws, sure, but I, I thought it was a really good movie. And I remember reading one review of it in which a male critic said, these women are supposed to be our sisters and our mothers and our girlfriends, but... And I went, no, they're not. They're meant to be us. You know, The assumption that we're all men is just such a bizarre one. But there you go. That's what you're up against as a female filmmaker. Around that time also, I think Catherine Bigelow won the Oscar for Best Director at the Academy Awards for a film called The Hurt Locker. And 
The Hurt Locker is about the most masculine film you could ever get. And I thought it's so interesting how we are so insistent on the kinds of stories that matter. That a woman could win for best director at that point, but only really if she was telling a very male story. That if she had made a film that was about women and women's stories, that it wouldn't have landed that way. The beautiful thing to me is that right now it feels like we are finally in a shift. I think it's Sundance last year. I should check the figures, but I think it was over 50% of films directed by women. Yes. And I know from looking at statistics very recently about last year that the number of movies overall that were directed by women was up to 21%, which is obviously a far number short of, 25, of the 50% that we're looking for. Right? We're, we're nowhere close. <laughs> but it's the first real advance that has been made in decades. So you got to celebrate something. you got to celebrate that. I personally think there has never been a better time to be a woman and to be an artist. For the first time in history, it is safe for us to do this, and we have an opportunity to tell our stories. And I think there's a challenge to us in this, because the invitation to be an artist is this. We can tell the stories that have already been told. We can stay safe and not challenge the concepts in our mind, the tropes in our mind, the instincts that we have that have been conditioned by the patriarchy. Or we can do the work of actually waking ourselves up and change the story, create new stories. I've said this many times. I don't believe the films in our world just reflect our reality. I think they also create it. And right now, up until now, all the stories are kind of along the same thing. It's the hero's journey. Everyone will tell you with screenwriting, tune into the hero's journey. I don't know about you. I'm just at this point where I look around the world and I think we have a lot of problems. A lot of the way things have been done, it's not working. We're facing a climate crisis like nothing before. We're facing still economic injustice and poverty around the world, which is completely unnecessary. There are so many issues. If we are going to evolve as a species, if we are going to transform the society, if we are going to heal it, if we are going to create something new, something magical, something incredible, and why couldn't we? We have to start telling some new stories. And in order for us to do that, we individually have to challenge ourselves to look at the stories we are telling, why we are telling them, how we are telling them, whose perspective we are telling them from, and question it. We need to be brave enough to create new stories, completely new stories. I don't even know what those new stories look like. I sometimes think about this. If we could get away from the masculine, if we could get away from the masculine structure, what do we tell? I know as women, there are so many stories, so many stories that have not been told. So this is the time. This is the time. I really feel it deeply. If you would like to explore this kind of conversation with me, next week I'm going to be teaching a free four-day masterclass. It's going to be called Female Artist Rising. I invite you to join me. It's going to be amazing. If you go to www.dianebell.com slash rising, you can sign up for it. And like I said, it's completely free. I want to explore with you 
what it means truly to be a woman and an artist today. And I just want to fire you up with the excitement of what is possible for us. Because honestly, sister, whatever you dream of is possible whatever it is. But we have to be bold enough and brave enough and committed enough to really step up to this moment, not to play safe, not to play small, not to do the things that have been done before millions of times by the men, not by playing the paradigm of the masculine that has just played itself out, but to really encourage ourselves and strengthen ourselves to tell new stories. So if you would like to join me, please do. It's dianebell.com slash rising. I would love to see you there. I have many more stories to tell about my life as being a female artist. I'm going to save some of them for another day. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I love you. I'm so grateful to you for being here. If you enjoyed this, please leave a review or screenshot it and mention it on your social media channels. I really appreciate that. And also, please ask your female friends to join me next week for Female Artist Rising. It's going to be a really special, special event. Thanks so much. I'll see you soon.